out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed. Hello. Welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest and sometimes we don't even want to talk about indie pop. And it definitely is the case this week because I spoke to the folk singer, Sheila Collins, um, last year to find out more about her life in music and much, much more. This is the interview. Enjoy. After we had a quick chat about um, gardening, we got down to that serious world that was music and her career. And this is Sheila's response. Sheila, it's over to you. You know, in the last couple of years, you've, you've been sort of very much back in the sort of public limelight, really, haven't you? It's quite a surprise. <laughs> yes. And how did that feel? Because obviously, just, just going back, you know, and obviously one of the people that I sort of followed as a comedian and you'll probably get oh no he's going to mention Stuart Lee is Stuart Lee um and 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 then this film that about your life came out the ballad um of, yeah. and you must have just thought mm, interesting well yes I did think um interesting but I also thought <laughs> sort of in a way wondered why um but you know things were just sort of slightly snowballing and um it all got to be great fun actually and I met some lovely people you know people that I just wouldn't have met um in in that field the field of film and the field of you know recording again so it's been it's been really wonderful yes I mean it's been the 21st century must you must have sort of thought that I don't know after uh, you know so many decades in music that it was all sort of going to just slowly sort of end but instead it's become since those several decades in, in music, I hadn't been singing for, you know, quite a few of them. Um, so it, it, it's all been a bit of a miracle, really. And uh, as I say, I've met some lovely people and I'm very happy about it. Yes. And just going back to your kind of very early years, which is always kind of fascinating. I mean, were you somebody who, you know, music was a huge part of, you know, your family and household and your parents? Yes, it was, um, always. I mean, but you see, when I was a child, we grew up in... My sister Dolly and I grew up during the war. And, I mean, I think my musical appreciation um, started when we were... And I've told this story so many times, but it's true that we slept in my grandparents' um, Morrison shelter. Um, or it's, it's an Anderson shelter. I never know which one. It's not the one that's in the garden. It's the one that's in the house... And it's like a big metal cage. Right. And you put a mattress in under it and sleep. And to keep my sister and me from worrying about all the bombing going on and the air raids, my grandparents would sing to us. Yes. And so I've always associated singing, you know, simple songs, some of which were folk songs I learned later, although I didn't understand that at the time. Um, so I've always associated it really with that sort of feeling of there's danger on the one hand, but the security of having your grandparents sing to you was quite considerable. Well, absolutely, and must have been a very strange... I suppose at the time it seemed normal, like my dad was very young during the war and, and just kind of had to sort of get used to things and didn't but know it, any different. Yeah, I mean, we were bombed out. We, there was an incendiary bomb dropped on the house next door, and so we had to move out of that house and move up to Aunt Grace's, and then we moved 
next door to where my grandparents lived. So uh, and as part from being evacuated twice as well, it was sort of a lot of movement going on. Absolutely. And that's just the, that takes you up to the mid forties. And then sort of when you sort of got to 17, which must've felt like um, a completely different time, you, you sort of went and enrolled in uh, a teacher training college in, in Tooting. Well, yes, I did. Um, partly because my mum was very keen on, on girls being educated and I really didn't quite have an idea of what I wanted to do and my head business suggested I, I go to teachers training college and learn to be a teacher. It wasn't really what I wanted, I just went along with it for a bit until I realised I didn't want to do that um, because by the time I was sort of late 17, 18, I'd started to become really interested in, in folk music and um, in English folk music that is, you know and uh, decided I'd have to try to do that. Yes. And though I didn't really know how. <laughs> so, yes. In fact, I did write to the BBC once um, to tell... I, I had what, My sister Dolly and I, on Saturdays, weekends, we'd go down to the library in Hastings and then to the pictures in the afternoon. And one time we saw a film called Nightclub Girl it was about a, a girl from the Tennessee mountains who'd been discovered by a New York talent scout and um, taken up to New York to sing in nightclubs. And she wore such pretty frocks that I thought, oh, I think I, that's what I want to do. I'll be a folk singer. And I wrote to the BBC to let them know. And um, this is when I was 15. And um, they passed the letter on to Bob Copper, who was a, a from a great family of singers in Sussex and at that time he was collecting and recording folk songs from ordinary people in the countryside for the BBC and they passed the letter to him which is you know, quite an extraordinary thing Yes. and um, and then I sort of <laughs> it just started, you know, I took it from there after I left training college I went back to Hastings and got a job as a bus conductress for the summer to get myself enough money to go to London and I'd only been to London twice in my life before that you know, uh, life's uh, so utterly different yes um, absolutely utterly different. <laughs> and obviously there was this kind of the famous party in the mid 50s that you um, you attended this is the one with, with you and McColl and then also was it well yes Alan? you and um, Alan had been, well, Alan Lomax is the American folklorist, of course. Um, and he was away from America at that time in the mid-50s, um, recording music in Spain and Italy. And uh, he was coming back to London for a couple of years, and you and McCall threw a party for him, and I was invited. And uh, just, I mean, I, he was always already a hero of mine because I'd heard his programs on the radio and thought, gosh, what wonderful stuff this is. And um, when I walked into the room, there he was. And I always tell it like it is because it's just exactly how it happened. I took one look at this big, tall, burly Texan with a head of shaggy dark hair and broad shoulders. And I fell in love on the spot because he reminded me of an American bison. And that was my favourite animal. <laughs> Fantastic. And that yeah, also... I mean, and I was going to say that also led on to you singing, you know, vocals on the famous Dirty Old Town. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't mention that. I mean, Alan and you and McCollum, Peggy Seeger and me, and I think Jim Bray was a bassist, and there was Brian, someone who was the guitarist. 
formed a sort of skiffle group, um, which is, you know, one of my most hated forms of music anyway. Um, but I went along as, a, as just to sing a couple of songs. And yes, I sang chorus on Dirty Old Town, but it's nothing I'm particularly proud of. It just happened at the time. And um, had I really sort of thought about it, I don't think I'd have joined in because I didn't like that crew. No, absolutely. <laughs> I guess, <clears throat> I was just going to say, I guess at that time, life was a bit hit and miss sometimes with who you met and who you try to avoid, but then sometimes it's difficult to avoid certain people. Well, yes, I mean, and it was such a, you know, it was the start of, of things happening in London, like music taking off, and the skiffle boom was, you know, quite a considerable one. Um, I mean, I met lots of singers. I met, you know, people who were running one or two clubs, in coffee bars. My mum was really anxious about me going into coffee bars. She thought they were such dangerous places. And she might have been right because there was one evening when I'd gone into a club um, that had a notice up outside that says folk and skiffle. And there was no folk music at all. It was just skiffle. And when I came outside, I took my lipstick out of my bag and crossed out the words folk. <laughs> <laughs> and the chap who was running the club just came up to me with a knife and said, uh, if you do that again, if you come here again, I'll use this on you. Um, so I, I didn't go back. No, I don't <laughs> so think... My mum was quite right, it might have been dangerous. Yes. But I was, I was so absolutely wrapped up in the thought that folk music was folk music and um, and not not anything else. And yeah. I've, I've had that opinion all my life, really, that the real folk music that comes from the ordinary people of the country... Um, you know, is, is what folk music is. You can't write it yourself, although lots of people claim to write folk songs. It just can't be done because it's had to undergo that wonderful process, you know, being passed on by word of mouth back through generations and, and often centuries. And that that's important to me, that it's the real thing. Yes. God, that's so interesting. And then, you know, quite as soon after that, you recorded your first two studio albums, Sweet England and False True Love. Did that sort of take, was that quite straightforward? Because kind of having interviewed quite a lot of people, they often spend quite a few years, you know, kind of trying and failing before something kind of happens. And in, in the, the occasional case, you know, sometimes it comes together quite quickly. So I just wondered how your um, early recordings happened. Well, they happened because um, Alan and I had been living together in London for about three years, and then he was, he decided to go back to America and was not going to take me with him. And I think as a sort of apology, um, he and Peter Kennedy, who was um, the son of the director of the English Folk Dance and Song Society, um, decided to make to record as many songs as I knew at that time, and. Um, I think it was done over two or three days, very quickly. Um, one, you know, in, in Peter's bedroom, which was sort of converted into a studio. I mean, I'm, I'm really embarrassed when I listen to those recordings now because I was much too young and um, a lot of the repertoire was really quite well, daft, I suppose. You know, songs that I'd learned from Cecil Sharp's folk songs for schools that were all bowdlerized versions of, of better songs. Um, but there, you know, you, you have to start somewhere. And um, so that was quite an easy, easy process, really. Yes. And of course, I was I was thrilled to bits to be recorded because in those days you had to, you know, you had to be asked um, to, to be recorded. You, you, you couldn't approach 
companies yourself or do it in your bedroom because you just didn't have the equipment. And uh, so it was a thrill. But when I listen to it now, and I think, well, <laughs> not not too good. But yes. as I say, it was a start. It's it's all you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? And and obviously, at that time, were you also sort of very much part of the sort of the, the I suppose the the sort of folk scene that was kind of developing around that time. Well, yes, I was. Um, but very much as a sort of independent. Um, I wasn't part of this, the critics group. Um, I just couldn't bear their attitude to the music. Um, but then I went to America for a year anyway, so I, I was out of it for a whole year. Um, and when I came back in 1961, uh, the whole thing had sort of escalated. You know, there were clubs opening up all over the country. And uh, it was quite easy after that to sort of make a living, but you had to travel to do it, you know. And um, yes, long, long, journey, long journeys on dear old British rail trains, which was yeah. really fun. Yes, because but your year in America or your mm. your period over there doing your collection of folk songs, can you remember much about that? I mean, was that I can remember everything about it. Um, <laughs> I mean, virtually everything, because my mum. Um, not too many years ago, 10 or 12 years ago, said to me, do you want your letters back, Shirley? And I said, well, what letters are they, Mum? And she said, your letters from America. And she had kept every single letter I'd written home. So when I got those you know, and read them, um, the whole thing just came to life again. And of course I had, you know, I, much of it was so utterly memorable that you, that you wouldn't forget it. I mean, I could sort of set it aside, but it was always, you know, the knowledge of it was always there. Um, but it was the letters that sort of really triggered off the whole thing again. Um, yes. That must have been really strange seeing, and, and especially as you'd forgotten about the letters as well, that must have been a really strange moment, sort of reading what you... Well, it was that Mum had saved them. I mean, I did write home of, often as I could. I had, a, and most of them were written on a typewriter because I was writing notes for the recordings of the trip anyway. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, just to reassure my mum that I was still alive, I think. Because yes. <laughs> I was in some pretty tough places. Well, absolutely. Uh, and also, it's what, wonderful to read them. <laughs> absolutely. And it's kind of interesting because a lot of artists now, I mean, who are sort of interviewed, as they get older, they don't really like to travel because basically they get kind of homesick. But then they say, well, at least you can contact people and even see them very easily. Whereas in the old days, you would just go on tour and, and that was it. You know, you'd have to be you know, hoping that phone boxes were about, that you had the right money and that the person that you're phoning home would be in at the same time, but sometimes you would just go for months without even thinking about anybody at home, which must have been really, you know, hard for the travelling artists to uh, cope, and especially when they returned home. It must have been like going to fight in the war, apart from not, you know, probably not that bad, but, you know... I don't think it was, think <laughs> it was that bad. No. I mean, in fact, I mean, as you say, phone, making phone calls in 1959 from America to... Well, for a start, my, my mum, we didn't have a phone at home anyway, not, not many people did, um, which is why letters are so important, you know. Yes. Um, so, 
um, no, that was the only way of keeping in touch, really. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you could send a telegram, but if a telegram arrived, it meant something dreadful had happened, so you wouldn't want to do that. No. <laughs> Your mum must have loved the post. That's an utterly different thing. Absolutely. And then when you started, sort of, because then you came back to Britain and you and you married Austin, Austin Marshall. Um, yes. So then you, you, and then you did another three compilation albums. Do you sort of look, looking back at them, a jug of punch, a pinch of salt and a rocket along, do you look at those with a little bit more kind of fondness than the first two albums? Mm, no, not really, because it, this, this material still wasn't good. Um, and I was only on what one or two songs on those albums. I mean, they were fun, and they sort of reflected what was happening at the time. And the covers that Austin John Marshall, my, who I married later, um, did was sort of so sixties, such sixties um, things that they they sort of you know hold up in their in their way nowadays. People look at them and oh, you know, look at them quite fondly, really, because they were so typical of the time. Yes. Um, but no, I mean, I, d- I don't remember singing anything of great consequence on those either. And it wasn't until I started making my own albums that, um, you know, that, that I had the the right material, the repertoire that I wanted, the songs I really wanted to sing. Yes. And I'm working with people like Davy Graham, who obviously has become such a legend in the guitar world, folk guitar world. I mean, was that an enjoyable process or experience? Well, it was. I mean, I was I was doubtful at first because um, John, sorry, my husband John, um, used to go to. He he loved jazz and would frequent jazz clubs. And there, it's there he first met Davy Graham, heard him play, and he he came and said, you know, this is incredible guitarist. I think you could really, you know, perhaps work together for a bit. And I thought, well, no, not if he's playing in jazz clubs because I absolutely hate jazz. And um, but they he invited. Um, Davy out to her house at Blackheath and Davy sat down and played um, an Irish tune. I mean, you know his influences at the time were Indian and North African and he was weaving this into his his own music Um, and he played this Irish tune with African riffs, North African riffs and and it, it somehow even enhanced the sound of the Irishness of it. It was absolutely incredible and I thought, Crumbs, this is something, um, you know, this is something extraordinary here. And so, you know, I agreed to work with him, and it was a wonderful association. And, you, you know, we made a, a good album, um, Folk Roots, New Roots, which is, you know, still on sale today. Everything is still on sale, which is sort of quite reassuring. Yes. And, and Davey was, you know, just a genius, really. Um, he didn't spoil anything. He just... Um, sort of enhanced it yes. but in a very strong way absolutely and also the other thing that i've sort of noticed in quite a lot of interviews with bands is that most people have a five-year five-year journey where they you know they often get together spend a few years make a sound do the first album and then the second album's a bit tricky and if anybody ever does america they come back and feel a bit you know like i'm never doing that again and mm-hmm. and that's kind of often five years and then they need a break whereas you you sort of trundled on, trucked on right through the 60s in, into the 70s. So you did have a lot of stamina for this. Well, it was, I mean, fortunate for me that after Davy, um, for some reason it hadn't occurred to me that my sister Dolly, who was a train composer um, and keyboard player, could um, write arrangements for the songs. 
And we'd disc- when she, she came to London occasionally, and we'd go along to the early music centre in West London and listen to um, people like David Munro um, rehearsing. And it was there that we heard this little flute organ or a portative pipe organ. And it had such a sweet, fluty, breathy sound that we just fell in love with it and um, realised that you know, here was really the perfect instrument for Dolly to arrange on and for me to sing with. Um, yes. And uh, and then that, that sort of lasted for you know quite a few years. Yes. Um, and it was a lovely episode. Um, yes, which, which, which kind of... Um, so you did a, one particular, you did an album with her, didn't you? Anthems in Eden. We did Anthems in Eden. We made several albums, actually. We, Anthems in Eden was the first big one, which is a suite of songs um, purporting, really, to... leading up to, you know, the loss of innocence from the country um, yes. before the First World War um, and up to the First World War. And... Um, that's that had quite a profound effect on people as well. And again, you know, it was all English songs. And then we went on after that to make um, Love, Death and the Lady together. And then um, my marriage to John broke up and I moved away. And uh, then we made we made not The Power of the True Love Knot, um, Sweet Primroses. Um, then we went on to make several together. Yes. And, uh, and she was the perfect person to work with, you know, because I just loved every note she wrote as well. Amazing. And she understood the harmonies that I think were right for English songs. And they weren't, um, they weren't like anybody else's arrangements, really. She was just incredible and such a pleasure to sing with. Yes. Um, well, it's also interesting because obviously we hear a lot about the 60s, but mostly it's in, con- con- you know, to do with the sort of, I suppose, the hippie counterculture. So what was your sort of kind of kind of relationship with a lot of the things that were going on during that period? Well, I, I wasn't ever so sort of deeply in with everything. You know, I was sort of on the sidelines because, A, I was specialising in English music um, and I, I wasn't frightfully interested in the popular side of things um, or the then American side of things. That was it. so. I, I didn't. I mean, I had yes, I had friends in the folk world, but on the whole, I was sort of um, a bit separate from it. And I quite liked that really because I didn't want to get in a sort of um, gro- uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? A groove. I didn't want to get into a you know the clique. The, I guess. The, yeah. The, yeah. I mean. And uh, it's just uh, that's the way I am, really. I sort of quite like being a separate entity. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But then, but then, but, then. A, but then the seventies started yep. came round, a new decade, and then a new musical experience as well, or new musical. Yep. Well, <laughs> this is all sounding so unlikely, isn't it? Really. Well, it's um, an amazing but, story because you know it's like. Well, then I met Ashley Hutchings. And we fell in love and got married and made, I mean, so such a productive time together. Um, you know, he made the Morrison albums. Um, we formed the Albion Country Band for that first album I made of No Roses, um, which I first time I sang with um, electric instruments as, as well as others. Um, 
and that was an incredible experience. It was, I mean, it was great fun, and the songs on the album were just wonderful. And um, I really enjoyed doing it. And people say, you know, what, how, what was it like singing with an electric band? Well, for me, it wasn't really any different from singing with anything because I don't sing differently. I always sing the same. Um, and uh, it, it just, you know, it's just such fun for a start. And as I say, some glorious music came out of it. Yes. And, um, you know, it's just, I, mean, I think these days, I, the, the one person I'm always very keen to see when he's in, in uh, working over here is Richard Thompson. I saw him recently at the Delaware Pavilion in Bexhill. It was just wonderful to see him again. And to know I actually, you know, recorded with him was just sensational. But, um, you know, we were all not very starry at that time. Um, and uh, I remember the, the musicians coming down to... Well, we were recording Morris albums, of course, the Morris dance, and um, they, all the musicians came down to our garden in Etchingham in Sussex to have their photos taken in various weird costumes. Um, and uh, I remember my kids... My my son blew up the balloons that became Barry Dranfield's bosom, and and um, Polly Polly did his makeup because he was a rather frowsty washerwoman, I think. Um, but and then they play cricket in the back garden, and Richard Thompson knocked a ball through a bathroom window. <laughs> Quite a memorable moment as well. <laughs> Excellent. I bet he always mentions that when you bump into him. Or does he? I say, does he always? Does, do you often mention that when you bump into him? Well, he remembers it. Um, um, he because when I saw him at Bexhill a few months ago, he he brought it up. He mentioned it straight away, and so he obviously <laughs> remembers the time as well and uh, asked if I'd forgiven him. Well, <laughs> yes, of yes. course. <laughs> it's one of those. It's a great concert. It must be him. Yes. Well, having that memory of of working and being with so many people of that kind of. Um, yeah, quality and generation. It, it must well, just be. Dave Mattox drumming, you know, Simon Nickel, John Kirkpatrick, Barry Dransfield. You know, unbelievable lineup, really. Yes. But as the decade went on, did you be mm. slightly sort of find the the kind of the stamina to keep going, sort of quite hard going? Because you, you sort of you did a retirement moment towards the end of the decade. Well, I mean. I had, I had a good domestic life as well. You know, I love living in the country. I wasn't away a great deal because Ashley was also working with bands that I wasn't in. And so I, I you know, I, I was able to sort of lead a fairly normal life with the children. Um, so, no, I, you know, just it was just fun, all of it, really. Um, it was energising rather than exhausting. Yes. But then, did you did you make a conscious decision to to step away from from it all? Well, I do remember one because I I was thinking about this recently on one of my albums. I think it was Amaranth. I wrote a note saying I intend this to be my last album. Um, I think I did that partly because Ashley was getting sort of exhausted because he was working so much, and I thought, no, what what I should do really is is make sure. You know, support him and make sure his life's okay and uh, as easy as possible to to live. Um, so, yeah. I, but then I had to change my mind about that because Ashley left. Uh, he fell in love with an actress at the theatre, and um, well, he fell in love with two actresses at the theatre. 
and and the whole thing, you know, we were, that that sort of parted us permanently. And um, but as I say, what I remember at the time together was, you know, what good music we made. Yes, but God, that was painful. That must have been a. It was. It was. But I, I, you know, I got over it. it took me a long time, but because um, it was such a shock. And I thought we were so good together, and as I say, we you know achieved so much together. But um, no, it took me years and years, which is why I stopped singing. Because at the theatre, sorry, this is such a sob story, and I do hate telling it, but it's just exactly what happened. Is that um, we were working at the National Theatre in in productions of Lark Rise, and I was singing with the the band. And it was a promenade performance. They had audience right up in front of you, standing in front of you. But his, the, the woman he'd left me for turned up night after night and stood right in front of me wearing his sweaters. And it just did for me. It did me in. Um, I was trying not to cry. Some nights nothing came out when I opened my mouth. Some nights I croaked and it was just humiliating. And um, I, I tried and tried and tried because I needed to earn a living as well. Um, but I just it just did for me. And um, I tried to sing with Dolly and other companies for a, a year or so, but it, I just couldn't rely on myself to sing at all. And I thought, well, I can't lose what reputation I have this way. It's just too humiliating. So I, I stopped. Yes. But now I've started again. <laughs> and then, yes, but, and, that, and, you know, just to give it some context, I mean, that was that was the early 80s, wasn't it? Late. It was, yes. And so, and so, 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 so from basically the 80s, the 90s, you know, there was no one heard from you. And there's quite a few folk singers who made, you know, those kind of very sort of classic, iconic albums and have totally disappeared. Um, so you you almost fell into the same sort of that sort of same chapter of people who were like where are they now? But then you appeared again in in two thousand and six, wasn't it? Was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, was it was it this was it the album Black Ships Ate the Sky? Oh yes. Well, I mean, I, I owe a great deal to David Tibet of Current Ninety Three. Um, he he phoned me one day when I was living in Brighton and um, said how much he'd loved my music in the past and could he come and meet me? And he came over to Brighton with a few friends and um, he, I, you know, he said how much he loved my singing and I, he said, I've got two favourite singers. And he said, you're one of them. I thought, oh yeah, and who's the other one? He said, Tiny Tim. <laughs> 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 that somehow dampened my interest for a minute or two, but um, then he started to he uh, you know started to release one or two CDs with with um, you know various songs and various albums, and sort of you know helped me get going um, financially as well. Yes. And he kept asking me if I'd sing. Um, at a con- at concerts of his, and I kept saying, uh, first of all, I said no, I can't can't sing, David, I can't do it, and then. A couple of years went by and he'd ask again. I'd say, well, perhaps, you know, but when the day came, I just couldn't do it. But then finally the day came when he was putting on a concert at the um, chapel in, oh, what's it called in Islington? Uh, sorry, this is... Oh, silly is that Union Chapel? In... The Union Chapel, yes. yes. And he said, would I? And I said, yes. And I did it. Um <laughs> 
I did it with Ian Keary accompanying me on guitar and just, we just sang two songs and it was very scary indeed but the audience were really warm um, and lovely and, and Tibet was really pleased and I thought yes I, I owe you that Tibet um, oh. I just did it for him really but you know it, it kick-started things well, and, and just to give that some context, that was 2014, which which was quite some time. So when you, you know, lost that confidence or whatever, I don't know how mm. you describe it, you know, the singing, the ability to sing, did that, had it just gone? Did you feel emotionally? Well, I still love the music and I, I, I'm still learning songs and listening to songs because I, I learn a great many of my songs from... Um, the field recordings that were made in the 1950s and, of course, the songs that were collected, um, noted down by people like Vaughan Williams and Cecil Sharp and George Butterworth. Um, so I, I kept learning this stuff because I, I really loved this music so much and, and still do. I couldn't let it go, but I couldn't sing it, but I could continue to learn and I can learn songs very quickly. So I was sort of singing them in my head, but never thought I'd... Get, you know, find the nerve to to open my mouth in public. Um, so I was I was still listening to music and listening to the field recordings, but um, not able to sing still. Yes, until God, that... Tibet gave me that little chance. And uh, but even so, after that, it took a while as well. Absolutely. But then you know, you brought this album out two years later, two thousand and sixteen, Lodestar. So yeah. did did you sort of because it's a it's a ten track album did did you sort of take a while to know what you were going to record and put on it or did it come together quite? It came together quite easily because there were songs that I had wanted to you know songs that I had learned and and would love to sing and didn't think I ever would. Um, so it was not difficult finding the songs and um, a couple of them came from songs that I had recorded. Um, as field recordings in in America in Arkansas and and uh, and so I put a couple of those on the album which I because I love them as well and um, I mean it was a funny process making it because I knew I couldn't go into a studio um, you know what was I seventy nine eighty by then um, and. I thought, I can't go into a studio and get some young engineer who's going to think, you know, what's this old girl doing singing these funny old songs? I just couldn't face that. So we recorded everything in my cottage in Lewis, and um, it took a while, and, and all my dear musicians were very, very gentle and very patient. But we had fun making it as well, and uh, especially the time um, that yes. Alec... Came with Alex. Um, came with his full drum kit into not a very big front room, and got half of it out just to play a few skittery things on Pretty Polly. He said, "I can't, I can't play unless I got my whole drum kit out." <laughs> <laughs> Alex, Alex Nielsen, that was of course. Yes. And then you know, um, it was quite well received. I, I, I was anxious that people were just being kind about it because, um, because I thought you know they thought they ought to humour me but um it, it it had a certain certain something to it yeah absolutely um but um you know moving forward looking forward to making the next one now excellent that's very <laughs> and then obviously you know you've got the 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 ballad of kate you know the, the film as well which must yeah. have just felt really good 
to sort well, of... I know, and I can't remember how that came about either. Oh, yes, I, I do remember, actually. Because um, um, in the meantime, I was I was doing some spoken word shows with, with um, recorded examples of music. And I, I, did a, I did a whole series on America Over the Water because um, the book was published. And, and so I wrote a, a script and had the recorded music from America on that. And I also um, wrote a script for gypsy music of southern England because they're remarkable singers and, and carry a huge tradition of songs. And and one night in London, I was doing um, the gypsy talk and two chaps came up to me and said, um, can we talk to you about the possibility of making a film about you? Well, luckily, one of them turned out to be Tim Plester, the actor who had made a wonderful film about um, Adderbury Morris men, which is a beautiful film. Um, you know, how the, how the side had almost died out after the First World War because so many of them were slain on the battlefields. And then he wrote, made this lovely film, and I thought, well, if you can make that film, yes, I trust you should make one about me as well. Um, otherwise, I'd have thought somebody was really taking the mickey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then, obviously, with that, and, you know, the album and, and sort of people sort of being curious, you, you sort of, did you suddenly think, God, there's all these people who I've never met, I've never sort of even thought about, have come out the woodwork, so to speak, and said, God, you know, we're huge fans, you know, and have and appeared on the film as well. Well, yes, I mean... Some sort of bit of a miracle, really. How, how, I mean, they worked so hard at it. Um, and because I live in Lewis, you know, they're able to, to film the wonderful Lewis Bonfire um, celebrations, which are absolutely remarkable here. Um, and sorry, I don't remember what you asked me. <laughs> oh, yes, just, just well, it was just that you, know, you had an album, a tribute album compilation that came out as well. Featuring oh, that's right. Yes, the me- there, was, that. there was people like the Mekons who were this Leeds <laughs> kind of right. punky band, and also Adam and the Ants, as well as yes. other people who were, you know, like Bonnie, Prince Billy, and um, yes. Angel Olsen. And I just yes, thought, I know. And, well, and, <laughs> and that must have felt quite incredible. Like, oh, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you. I don't know, you might have met and knew a few of them, but to, to record your but material... No, I mean, I didn't know many of them, and I didn't know... I mean, it didn't occur to me that, that anybody um, outside the sort of narrow world of folk music knew my music, my recordings. And I have to say, you know, it was quite a surprise listening to it. Some people's interpretation of it were quite challenging. <laughs> <laughs> and some were lovely, you know, but um, I was really grateful to them all for, for doing it, and... Uh, saying, you know, they were surely inspired, which, you know, I had no no knowledge of at all. Yes. And so that was a lark. That was a huge lark. I thought that was just yeah. lovely. And and I think, you know, it was a few years ago I was listening to Stuart Lee who was talking and, and sort of started talking about you and sort of, I think, I can't remember if he used to play, yeah, I don't know whether he played music or sung some songs, but his kind of relationship of, of your, your um, work was something that, that he was particularly fond of. So that must have been quite an interesting meeting. Oh, but no, that was, I mean, that was one of the best things that ever happened was getting to know Stuart, because um, I, I just love him now. You know, he's just so remarkable. 
but I met him. I mean, my daughter went to university in Oxford um, at St. Edmund Hall, and apparently Stuart did as well. And um, about four years ago, I mean, time sort of uh, telescopes a bit for me now. Um, They were opening a folk club there in the college and uh, invited me along to sort of make an opening speech. And Polly, my daughter, came with me, and Stuart was there. Um, So it was a thrill to meet him. But then in the interval, I heard Stuart Lee and Stuart Estelle, who's a concertina player, singing one of the songs that I'd recorded, Polly on the Shore. And I listened to this. I thought, this is one of the best things I've heard for ages. Just And they were just sort of running through it. You know, it wasn't a performance. And um, they did it in the second half. And at the end of it, I was just on my feet applauding. You know, it was so good. Um, and so my admiration for Stuart Lee, you know, as a comedian is is 100% anyway, but the fact that he could sing this song from the Napoleonic Wars and, and move me so with it and thrill me so with it, I, you know, it's just one of the best moments of my life, quite honestly. I don't often leap to my feet at the end of a song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I did on that occasion. But he, he did say to me, um, actually, Shirley, I didn't learn it from you. I learned it from a group called The Trees. But it was a song that was collected in Sussex anyway, um, not many miles from where I live. So, no, so, and, and that was just the start of this really oh, great friendship. Um, he's such a generous man as well, and as we know, it's so funny. But he, he just generously gave his time in the film. He wrote the foreword for my album and for my, my book, you know, the book that came out recently. Yes. Um, and that was another thrill because I won the Pendarin Prize for it for the best music book of nineteen of twenty eighteen. Fantastic! Which God. was incredible. You know, it's up against people who were writing about oh, Beastie Boys or something. I can't remember. None, <laughs> of, none of these names mean a great deal to me. No. But anyway, so that was about three weeks ago. I went to Wales and was presented with the prize. Wow! Which is a nice check and. A, a, 300 pound bottle of Welsh whiskey, a very special one, which I haven't sampled yet. I think I've got to get friends in to help me. <laughs> well, I know. At that, at that it's 59% sort of... proof. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> at that price, you don't really want to sort of. Um, yes. <laughs> well, no. I mean, it comes in the most beautiful wooden box as well. Excellent. Uh, but um, no, it's, it's the, the whole thing has sort of come round in such a wonderful fashion. Oh, and, and um, also my publisher, Strange Attractor Press, who published All In Downs, are going to reprint um, America Over the Water, that which has been out of print for a few years. So that's really exciting for me to have that book out again. Fantastic. Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And here I am, coming up to 84. And... Uh, <laughs> One of the joys of spring, really. Absolutely. <laughs> and when and when are you thinking of the new or next album sort of coming out or, or starting to record it? Um, I, I would think towards Christmas um, it might come out. Right. This is good. This is very... Is, and, yeah, <laughs> I can't say any more about that. No, no. Have you, cho- <laughs> have you chosen the songs that you want to put on it? Yes, yes. I, I, no, I can't talk about it. Fair enough. <laughs> I won't. We we won't say any more. But hopefully, it'll be, it'll be a nice end to a decade, which has been very special as well. So, it's going to be nicely bookmarked. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, well, I can't tell you how um, amazing it all is. I'm not letting it go to my head, though. <laughs> no, until you open the whiskey. <laughs> That's another moment, isn't it? Anyway, um, look, this has been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. Well, and, thanks, um, David. It's been a pleasure talking to you, actually. Um, you know, it's quite fun. <laughs> yes, well, no, it's fantastic. that goes on. Excellent. Well, thank you. And I'll, um, well, I'll tell you when I put this out and, um, okay. and uh, make sure I send you a link and then um, it will go elsewhere around the world. Lovely. Excellent. Well, have a lovely evening and a lovely spring. I summer. shall. I'm rather glad I don't have to water again tonight. No, this is true. Um, yeah. We've done our bit for today. Anyway, look, have a lovely day. And David, have... thank you so much. You too. Oh, thanks for thinking of me. Yeah. No problem. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.